Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. This week we have something pretty different from our usual fare. It's even a little different from our standard special dispatch. This is a particularly personal uh, episode for me because I've been a huge fan of John McWhorter's work for years. In fact, I I was an enemy of his work, uh, the first reading, and it was the second reading um, that really... Uh, changed my mind about certain things and introduced me to ways of imagining the world that I really had not before. Um, I read his book, Losing the Race, while I was in college at the University of Maryland, and I was actually discovering a number of different intellectuals at that point. Um, But John's work is particularly special to me. Uh, John is a linguist and historian of language and an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University, where he teaches linguistics and American studies and philosophy. He is the author of 20 books, including most recently Talking Back, Talking Black, and Words on the Move. I've read a lot of them. They are very good. He uh, is the host of the Lexicon Valley podcast. He is a contributor to numerous publications. You have almost certainly read his work. And if you've listened to this podcast in the past and you've heard me talk about things, then you've heard me reference his work on a number of occasions. Uh, We agree on a great many things. There are some points of disagreement um, that are in some cases pretty, pretty profound, but we had um, a really richly rewarding exchange in which I probably talked entirely too much, which is maybe the wrong sort of advertising to give you. But I think you'll learn some things. We talk about linguistics. We talk about presidential politics by the end. And we spend a fair amount of time talking about the thing for which John is probably best known, race. I'm excited to be able to share this with you. Um, I really hope you take something beneficial away from it, and I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, on this conversation. So here's John McWhorter and myself. The fifth caller. I want to begin with two of your more recent books, and and this is the beginning formally. Mm-hmm. Um, both of which um, are principally about your actual field of study, if, mm-hmm. if I can call it that. That's where you've been professionally trained, and it's what you you do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think think about languages. Mm-hmm. Um, Words on the Move, 2017, um, and Talking Back, Talking Black, both of which, I guess, were published in 2016, 2017. They're both fairly new books. Words on the Move, I think, came out in late 16, and then Talking Back, Talking Black was early 17. Okay, great. Um, Both of which are books I've read. And I mean, I think most people listening who know you um, and know of your work are well aware of the fact that you are frequently um, cited with respect to various race issues. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if quite as many people have read of who are listening your yeah. books on language. Um, I have. In fact, I've probably read more of your books on language than I have your books on race. You're the rare person who <laughs> read both. Right. Well, this is the thing. I didn't realize, um, I didn't realize that I was interested in this until I picked up the book and actually started reading it. Um, and that's because you'd that's already my caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two things um, that I, I want to note, and I, I do want to kind of talk about what my takeaways from these books and have you kind of give a sense as to whether or not I I got it right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But with words on the move, language is emergent. Its rules are fluid, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard you say a word is not something that is a word is something happening. Exactly. Um, which I think is a really profound idea um, and something that I heard you expound upon on, on one of my favorite podcasts, um, Russ Roberts, Econ Talk. Yes. OK, that's uh, right. Yeah. At some point in the in the past. And I've learned a tremendous amount from Russ, as I have from you, um, about like, emergent order. So I was not surprised to hear the two of you talking. I was actually mm-hmm. quite pleased when I discovered it. And then with Talking Back, Talking Black, um, it's another book that I benefited from enormously. Um, and it's this, this notion that black English is different, but it's equally legitimate, mm-hmm. that it's not cha- chaotic digressions from the standard. It is its own unique property, mm-hmm. that it is systematic. And you use the word to describe it beautiful mm-hmm. and gave this great example of um, the use of the word had. Um, as, as you had overheard was. like a, a kid talking, yeah. um, I My wonder, cousin talking. Yeah. Is, oh, okay. It was your cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things about having conversations with you. I'm always wondering how you are hearing the things that I'm saying, not because I suspect you're sitting <laughs> in judgment over me, but I because I know you're listening. thinking about yes. what I'm saying that's and trying what to pick do. up on new trends and I openly fashions. admit I always am. Yeah. Or if there's some quirk in the way you put something, I will remember it. So I should yes. be self-conscious about the things that I'm saying <laughs> yeah. because you are parsing them carefully. You sound great. Um, so that's that's good. And you understand, though, it's never judgmental. Yeah. It's just, oh, where'd that come from? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sure. No, and, I, and that's what I most appreciate about your work. Um, I think I, like most people... Uh, when you go through your schooling, are given a set of rigid rules that Mm. there is a way that we are to speak. There is a way that language works. Mm -hmm. If you want to be understood, you must know this. And respected. Exactly. Yeah. Respected, not not understood. I think that's a perfect um, differentiation because Mm -hmm. people understand the things you're saying all the time, at least certain people. but at other times, it's a matter of the the signals that you're sending, whether or not you are sufficiently well refined. And, you know, the first question I have for you, and I realize I'm doing a lot of talking, I'm going to try to it's give okay. you give you some air. So it's, uh, it's enthusiasm. Um, but <laughs> I know how it is. Um, you're interviewing and you, I yeah. do this, too. Yeah. But I've, I've frequently um, seen you frame these two books as an attempt to address something that maybe you define as like a deficiency within your discipline, that mm-hmm. there is something that linguists ought to be doing a better job of explaining. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about where that impulse comes from and why, hmm. and perhaps this is the same question asked in a different way, why, from your perspective, it's important for people to understand how languages emerge and mm-hmm. evolve? Um it's interesting that you picked up on that mission in both of those books, which are very different books. And I wrote them for very different reasons. The truth about Talking Back, Talking Black is that I really only did it as a favor to the editor at Bellevue Literary Press who mm-hmm. did my Power of Babel. And if it weren't for her, there would be no Power of Babel. She was the only one who even my agent at the time didn't like the first chapter of Power of Babel, which I find really peculiar. This age, this editor liked it. And we've kept in touch. We have white wine every couple of years. And really, just because I like her, I said, if you want something from me, I'll toss you off something. And I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm just so brilliant that I can just toss off a book. But that one really, I didn't put that much effort into it. I just said, (laughs) if you want this, and maybe I have a bit of a name as a language person, I'll write you something about Black English. I frankly wrote it in about 20 minutes. And I really didn't expect it to get much attention at all. And I was 
baffled that, well, I'm not baffled at all, but I was very surprised that Words on the Move did fine, but Talking Back, Talking Black got a full review in The New Yorker, of all things. It really made me realize that what most people will always find most interesting about me is my views about race. It's never going to be language. <laughs> but the um, those two books are also a corrective. You're right, in that linguists are very frustrated that the general public has a notion that there's a such thing as grammatical mistakes that people are stupid and remiss in making, that there's only one kind of English that's the right kind of English. And other than that, people are walking around messing it up. And then, of course, there is the sense that black people have particularly bad grammar. And as you and I know, that view is shared by most black people as well. Mm -hmm. So linguists are always sad about the public feeling this way. And we call ourselves trying to fix it by teaching classes where we talk about how prescriptivism isn't good. And in books about linguistics, there are, there's often a chapter saying that there's nothing wrong with saying Billy and me went to the store. But it never really seems to change anything. And it occurred to me when I was writing, thinking about what became Words on the Move, that there needs to be a book that really starts from what people are actually thinking about and makes it clear that language is as inherently changeable as cloud patterns. I, I decided there needed to be an analogy like that. Yeah. Because to just tell people, no, it's okay to use these constructions that your teachers said were wrong. And if you don't understand that, then it means that you're being prejudiced against the people who use the constructions, whether they're black or not. You're not nice if you think that it's wrong to say Billy and me went to the store. That argument, it's pleasant, but it doesn't work. Yeah. I was thinking in 2015, I was thinking linguists have made not a dent in the public's understanding of this. How can we do it in such a way that it might really make a difference? And so Words on the Move is not a book I think most linguists would have written. It's a kind of eccentric book, focused so much on what happens to words and for some of it to be that it becomes things like saying, well, horses run fast, for mm -hmm. some of it to be that it'll become the lee that is the adverbial suffix, to write about the compounding and how a blackboard becomes a blackboard and a day's eye becomes a daisy. That's not something I think most people would think of putting together into one book. But I realize those are the sorts of things that hopefully could make people understand that there's no such thing as a language being still and that you should think of it as something to spectate, if that's a word. Talking about Talking Black, like I said, was just a toss-off. It was done as a favor. I didn't think anybody would pay attention. But now that I guess they kind of have, the two books stand together with that message. I've never thought about them that way until right now with you saying so. But hmm. Talking Back, Talking Black is my attempt to defend Black English more effectively than I think, with all due respect and awe to the people who come before me, than I think it's been done before. The other books about Black English are splendid in many ways. They are richer than mine in many ways, but their basic predication is if you don't like Black English, you're a racist. Mm -hmm. And once again, that is a valid first attempt at an argument. It goes back to about 1966. It doesn't work. Yeah. After 50 years, I realized that doesn't work. What most people are thinking is, no, it would be racist of me not to correct people in their bad grammar. It would be racist of me not to point it out. It's not racist to expect people to have good grammar. That's what a perfectly ordinary New York Times reading non-racist significantly person might think. And I thought, how do we get through it? Again, it has to be linguistics. And so explaining that there are always different dialects and not because of any value-related issues in people, but because that's just the way language is, that there is coherence in that which you hear as vulgar and messy, that min 
minstrelese was real and it was caricatured, but minstrelese being racist doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation about the legitimacy of black English, because I've noticed that there are some black people as well as white people who think that the whole concept of black English is something that white minstrels made up and black people adopted out of unintentional self-hatred. There are people who really believe that. So Mm -hmm. if they believe it, you have to address it. So the research that I did do for that book, which was frankly very little, was I looked into minstrelese and the roots of that kind of view. And I looked into slave, ex-slave speech more than I had before. So yeah, that's what those two books are supposed to be doing. And we'll see. But I really do think, and I'm, a shoe hasn't dropped yet, but I assume that there are going to be some probably black American linguists who are mad at me for saying this, but telling people that you're a racist if you don't like black English doesn't work. It may be satisfying to you, but it doesn't change anybody's mind. And I wanted to try to change minds. And interestingly enough, the New York Times review of Talking Back, Talking Black was exactly what I'm talking about in that this person ripped me a new one for not writing a book about how it's racist to not like black English. This person genuinely couldn't understand that there would be anything else to tell the reading public about black English than that. Unfortunately, I now I literally don't remember that person's name, but unfortunately, that kind of person is standing in the way of creating linguistic understanding in America today about black English. That that simply won't do. So we'll see how talking back, talking black does in terms of changing minds. I've gotten some encouraging emails, but um, you know, to tell you the truth, Camille, I'm beginning to realize these days that books in general can only make so much difference and that podcasting is really the way most people are getting their information these days. So I've put a lot of what's in those books into my own podcast since. Yeah. I I suspect that when you do write a book, I mean, part of what you're doing is organizing your own thoughts for your own purposes, first and foremost, um, and setting them down, refining them. And you're perhaps writing for a particular audience, some some. I one, used to think that I was writing to everybody, that. but it's yeah. at the point where, yes, that's yeah. the case. You're writing for this small audience. Uh-huh. And then if you really wanted to get out there, you have to use that material in right. more influential venues. They yeah. amplify it, distill it in mm-hmm. various ways, often in ways that you wouldn't necessarily endorse. You're um, so aware of that in a way that popular. I have been. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I'm, I'm someone who... Uh, I'm fortunate to to operate in a, a weird world where I find myself doing this thing, um, this public intellectual thing, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm probably not entirely qualified for, but far more qualified than most of the people oh, who do it. Quite. I'm, I'm well yes. aware of that. But I, I understand my limitations. Um, but I, I also, I haven't written a great deal. Um, I, I think a lot. I read a lot. I haven't written a, a great deal for public consumption anyways. I write all the time. Um, but I do engage in these podcast conversations a bunch. So I actually find myself like outlining things that I am writing like in the room in a conversation like this, Mm -hmm. um, refining the ideas, like putting things down, replacing them, uh, refuting them, um, having them be refuted, which is great. Exchanging error for truth as my, uh, as my good friend uh, and partner says, um, this is partly generational. Well, I, it's interesting. If I had come along and started doing this sort of thing in today's atmosphere where the way to really make a noise was to speak on the radio, so to speak, uh-huh. with books being just a calling card, I don't think I would have done it. I really love writing. Yeah. And I'm finding that 
it's becoming increasingly irrelevant, especially as I start having an ever harder time getting through nonfiction books because hmm. there's so much fun stuff to look at online yeah. all the time. But no, I started thinking I'm going to be a book writer. Yeah. And then all the rest of it, to me, as you know, is just kind of ancillary. Why, why do I want to go talk about it? You know, yeah. that's my real feeling about it. Now I realize the talking about it is the thing. I don't I don't know. I I want to, one, I mean, I would, the world would be a poorer place and my life would be impoverished in want important and dramatic ways if you weren't writing books. Oh, so well, don't thank stop. you. Um, <laughs> I might. But, but also, I mean, the, the people I know who do traffic and ideas are reading these books. You think um, so? And that's important. Absolutely. Um, not so. all of them and, and certainly not all of the, the pundit class who talk about these things because uh, the demands of a 24-hour news cycle of being the sort of news person who has to talk on television for an hour or more every day mm -hmm. and it needs to at least pretend to be knowledgeable about everything. But you're not going to have time um, to read books. They're not reading those books. Yeah. You know, they're reading reviews. They're they're borrowing uh, an idea from here or there. They're, they're certainly not. lunch with people. Yeah. It, what's, what's sad in, in many cases is they're certainly not reading the books that they ought to read, the ones that are on the, on the edge, that are exactly. introducing some new controversial idea that is upsetting people. Those mm -hmm. are the things they never bother to read because mm -hmm. we have a snapshot of what it is. Your ideas are unacceptable. And here's the standard knock on it, mm -hmm. um, which oftentimes um, in our contemporary context boils down to um, that's racist. Yeah. And once <laughs> it's racist, I don't have to engage with it in a serious way. You're a, yeah. you're a deplorable person. Um, this is not going the way I expected, uh, but that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> at least for me, this, this is, is edited, so satisfying. Right? This, um, is every word kinda, we say in it? I mean, mostly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, it depends. It, it's largely up to me. I okay. do a lot of the. I do a lot of editing on the back end. Well, maybe you can snip this out. How were you thinking it was going to go? Um, I don't know. Uh, I okay. mean, I, I sent you an outline yeah. and I was thinking a lot about sort of the way I wanted to arrive at things mm -hmm. and that, you know, we'd spend a little bit of time doing this, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but I won't cut that out. I think people might be interested <laughs> okay. in that, That's but, fine. but maybe we'll, we'll hop ahead a little bit and I think we can sort of revisit some of these other ideas. There mm -hmm. were definitely some other things that I wanted to talk about, but we'll, we'll maybe come back to it. But in terms of your work, uh, in public commentary mm -hmm. um, and your influences. Uh, I wonder first about your experience as a linguist. Um, like how does that influence your work as a social commentator, um, writing on issues of race and various other things that are perhaps a little further afield or at least seemingly further afield from, now, from linguistics? I'm going to be boring again. Zip. Yeah. I am two people in that sense. The language and the race commentary meet, of course, in black English, but mm -hmm. I think of that as just an accident. I didn't become a linguist out of blackness. It wasn't, I want to learn how to defend black English. At first, I avoided black English because it was too close to home. Mm -hmm. I was uncomfortable with the fact that quite naturally, a lot of people expected me to be interested in black English because I thought, no, I want to do Russian. I'm, I'm interested in maybe African languages, but not you know, the way my cousins talk. I didn't come into academia to study myself. Gradually, I realized that black English is actually very interesting in itself. And so I've drifted into having a couple of toes in that world. But no, linguist me is the little kid who was knocked over when he heard a little friend of his, who I actually am now in touch with, a friend of his speak Hebrew, and I'd hmm. never heard another language. I'm just old enough to have been four and to have never heard anything else spoken. We didn't live in a neighborhood with any Latinos. And what else would you have heard just four years after the Immigration Act of 1965? So everybody hmm. spoke English. So I thought it was just talking. Then all of a sudden, I can't understand her. 
I'm sure that most kids, you know, whatever color they were, would have just heard her and thought, oh, to me, that was just what is she doing? Yeah, so and I had like all, magic. Sure. all sorts of experiences I look back on where I realized most people wouldn't have cared, but I couldn't get enough of hearing these other languages. There was a woman, one of these roving music teachers who came to my Montessori school. And to the, my blood pressure goes up now even thinking about it. She's playing the guitar. You know, she's kind of this Joan Baez type. And she was doing Frere Jaca. And then she sang it. She sang it in English. She sang it in French. And I had probably heard that. And I don't know where I processed that Frere Jaca doesn't mean anything. Then she did it in Spanish. Then she did it in German. Wow. And I was just stunned. And I was home trying to repeat these German lyrics. My mother thought I was crazy. And so that sort of thing. And so once I knew what I wanted to do, which was be a professor of something because I was just raised with that assumption. No, let me, let me, no, not raised. That makes it sound like I had a more ordinary story than I think I did in this way. It wasn't that my parents said you have to be a professor. I was always a vaguely Asperger-ish professorly person who at five said, I want to be a book writer. Mm -hmm. So what else was that kid going to do? So I realized by the time I was 20, I am going to be a professor. I don't want to put on a suit and work in an office. But what am I going to be a professor of? And I thought, well, the thing that really gets me going and that I seem to have a talent for is language. You don't get a PhD in language, or if you do, you're studying Flaubert and literature, and that's not what grabbed me. I wanted to be a linguist. So that's how that happened. Race is completely separate. There's a story out there that will never die for people, getting to the point where it's people of a certain age who think about me, which is that I decided in the late 90s that I wanted to be famous on the right wing talk circuit mm -hmm. so that I could make money giving speeches about how bad black people are. <laughs> and so I wrote Losing the Race in order to get that attention so I could get out there and make all that money on the circuit. I learned that during the first two years after Losing the Race that a lot of perfectly sane people genuinely believed that I didn't really believe the things that I wrote in that book, but I wanted to get rich on the conservative talking circuit, which I had not known existed, to be honest. I don't think I knew what a think tank was when I wrote Losing the Race. That had nothing to do with it. Sure. I wrote Losing the Race because I, of chance, I happened to be at UC Berkeley when there was a huge debate over the demise of racial preferences there. And I saw that the issue with racial preferences was not simply that black students needed these preferences because they were all poor. I saw that also... Racism had left a tendency in many black kids to disidentify from school as something white. And that had, from what I could see, as much to do with the performance gap as poverty. And I was so dismayed by the tone of the debate, which in retrospect was very much like campus debates now over free speech, where people just simply couldn't listen to each other. And the word racist was used as a bomb rather than as a word. Hmm. I just thought this bothers me. I'm a quick writer. And so, honestly, writing a book for me is not a major effort. And when my agent said, would you like to write a book about this? I at first said no, because I figured, why would anybody care what some linguist thinks about, you know, affirmative action? Mm -hmm. And she kind of pushed the point. And I said, well, you know, all right. And I did work on Losing the Race. I wrote Losing the Race in about eight or nine months. That's frankly long for me, but I wanted, I wanted to get it right. So I did put effort into it. Uh -huh. And you know, I, before it came out, I honestly thought 
it was just going to land with a thud. It would get me in a little trouble in the Bay Area. But I wanted that out there as a calling card because, frankly, I wanted people like you to read it and realize that you could have some views similar to those and not be crazy. Mm -hmm. I thought there needs to be a book written by a black person who's halfway intelligent like this. And Shelby Steele isn't enough. There needs to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did. Free Press, who published it, clearly had no hopes for it at all. They were brutally dismissive of my book during the (laughs) editing process. I'll say it now because the editor, unfortunately, has passed away, but she clearly didn't give a damn about Mm. the book. Didn't like it. You know, Mm -hmm. she was a a, a white liberal and thought that I was a bad person. And uh, although always giving me the kiss and the hug when, when we met. And they really didn't put much behind it. They sold the paperback rights before the book even came out. They mm-hmm. had no hopes for it. Mm-hmm. And yet, for reasons I still don't completely understand, it was a minor bestseller. But I didn't write it as language me. I wrote it as a very frustrated black me and then thought I would get back to real life, which was writing the power of Babel right after it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this is like candy. I'm back to the real thing. And I didn't think I'd ever write about race again. And instead, it turned out that I have these two tracks and I've just kind of juggled them. But writing about language for me is the fun thing and the natural thing. That's what I wake up thinking about. Writing about race is a job and I have to you know, change the gears in my brain. No more thinking about Indonesian or anything like that. I have to think about the latest thing Donald Trump said or you know, whatever. And I write about that because I think that, as I thought in the late 90s, an awful lot of black people think like me. But mm-hmm. they're trained to think they're not supposed to say so. They're not supposed to write it. And in general, you could get the idea that you cannot be black with a Ph.D. and have any of the views that I have. Mm-hmm. And that won't do. And so I have to write what I think. And, you know, I was hoping 20 years ago that people would follow in my footsteps. That hasn't happened much, but I don't think it's because there aren't people who agree with me. It's just that you take so much shit when you say anything <laughs> other than racism, 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 racism. So yeah. I do it as a duty, but those are two different people. There are days, this is going to sound so self-involved and I, I have many flaws, but being self-involved is not not one of them in this sense. At the end of some days, I think to myself, you know, today... I did a podcast where I talked about Indonesian and Romanian, Mm -hmm. and then I wrote a piece for CNN about free speech and racism. I did those two things in the same day. Who are those two people? Yeah. And then I make dinner. Yeah. That's what that's what it is to be me. Yeah. So, yeah, they're they're not related. That's interesting. You know, I'm I'm someone who ends up uh, having already arrived like in this room behind this microphone talking about ideas and in. I've arrived here in a weird way. Um, Hmm. And at this point, I have a professional affiliation with my creative agency where I contribute to the making of really high quality, great, inspiring documentary content. Mm -hmm. Um, I am the least responsible person for most of the extraordinary and successful videos that we do there, but I'm a part of that team. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have this weird other me that talks about public policy and ideas um, and frequently um, and more recently, um, I think since since Ferguson, I've always had curious ideas about race. They got in, even more curious after encountering your book. Um, for me, I think the reason why I do find myself talking about it so frequently is because I, I have genuinely 
bizarre and heterodox ideas that I don't hear other people articulating. Mm -hmm. And I have a hard time oftentimes writing about it. One, because of the, the horrible, like, nasty garbage that you get tossed your way, the mm-hmm. assertions that you're doing this in order to get wealthy. Mm-hmm. I would, I would you be, hate yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be better off. I would be a happier, more fulfilled person if most <laughs> of my family and friends like were pleased with my ideas about various things and if we weren't in persistent disagreement. Yeah. The, the label that I get most often that I find um, most uh, annoying isn't Uncle Tom or Hausnicker. Those are silly things that don't really bother me in any sort of way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not um, conservative either because I'm not one of those, Um, but it just, it's not so irksome. Um, It's contrarian. Like I'm not arriving at these positions because I want to disagree with label. the status quo. It makes you sound so yeah. trivial. Yeah, like you're absolutely. sitting there thinking, I'm going to get on people's nerves. Like yeah. you're some sort of imp with a slingshot. I think for, yeah. for some people who haven't bothered to think about something in a very deep way, um, to, to encounter a new idea that is genuinely frustrating for you. Mm-hmm. It is far easier to say, well, what are you even talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason you would raise that point is because, you know, you just you want to make you want to stir name up for yourself. Pot. Yeah. Right. Um, no. I, one, I think it's much more interesting to talk about the things we disagree about than the things we agree about most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and two, um, I I genuinely disagree. And to the point to the extent I think this is something meaningful and important, I, I want to talk about the mm-hmm. reasons why. And I. Yeah, in some cases would like to to persuade you. There you go, stirring that stuff up. <laughs> and most people don't understand why you would do that. Yeah. And it's partly because of racism and the way we've come to process anti-racism. It's, it's religion, as yeah. I have written. And I the piece that I wrote on that in The Daily Beast, I consider probably one of the 10 most signature things I have ever written. Yeah. That anti-racism is genuinely in every way the educated Americans true religion. Yeah. So if you say something that goes against roughly a Ta-Nehisi Coates, William Jelani Cobb orthodoxy, uh-huh. then you must be doing it for some pathological reason yeah. because you couldn't possibly be right. It's as if you're it's 1450 right. and you're walking around in the street questioning whether there's a God. It's exactly <laughs> that. That person you know is just asking for something and is probably a little bit off. That's so odd that you put it that way. I, I hadn't, for whatever reason, I have never thought about it like that. Um, I, I have definitely read your anti-racism piece on numerous occasions. In fact, I, I probably Thank reference you. it every couple of weeks when talking to people about things because I'm glad, it, it I really, to bring some things into focus. I for really me. think that nails something. Yeah. To be but honest. the, but the notion that when you are someone who is, um, I think in your case, you self identify as black. In my case, I'm phenotypically black and we can talk about that weird <laughs> distinction. In a oh, bit. this race thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I find it, it's so like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little flummoxed right now. Like this notion of, being someone who is in public disagreeing with 98% of the people who kind of sort of look like you in some way (laughs) and saying, you know, the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. No, it's totally flat. And Mm -hmm. everyone else, everyone else is, and actually that's the wrong way to use that. Yeah, do it the other way around. The earth is round and everyone else is persuaded that it's flat. And they know that if they go to the edge, they'll fall off. (laughs) Um, That is, uh, it's a weird 
place to be in. And it's uncomfortable as hell. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think people have a real appreciation for what that looks like. But yeah, I most wanna... of those people don't know that when you are this quote unquote contrarian, yeah. you're not having any fun. No. They seem to think that you're somebody who enjoys fighting with people. And I think you and I probably both enjoy a debate to an extent. Sure. Absolutely. A, a good one. You know, yeah. most right. But most of those people, <laughs> for example, for me, I don't mind being yelled at. I grew up in a frankly, very contentious home. Uh And so I got used to argument, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That scene does not scare me. But if you are a contrarian, just a green room can be such a drag that I am very careful with radio and TV bookings Mm -hmm. in saying who else is going to be on the panel? Yeah. What is the architecture like? The thing that I like least is sitting in a green room before being on, you know, some TV show and the other two people are sitting there and they hate you. That doesn't happen to me as much now as mm-hmm. it did during the aughts, but the other person's right there across the room. And of course, everybody's cordial, but you can tell when people are being just cordial. And I've had some people with frowns on their faces. Lanny Guineer looked up and took my hand as if I was made out of feces <laughs> and would not look me in the eye ever again and during the panel referred to something I said as that. Yeah. That's the sort of thing that you get. And so why would somebody seek that? You know, if you're just this impish contrarian, why would you seek Lanny Guineer looking at you like you're a leper? Yeah. You know, and it's usually not that bad, but there's some people I could name where, you know, shake your hand and then they go onto their phone, you know, or they'll give you a hug and then make a salty little remark about how conservative you are and you can tell what they think. No, you know, and it's that's gotten better ever since I have come out as an Obama supporter, for example. That mm-hmm. seemed to make most people realize that I'm not Clarence Thomas Jr., although if I were and could defend it articulately, that should be okay. Uh-huh. But it made it a lot easier that people could see, no, I'm a cranky liberal. I'm not this Armstrong Williams that you thought I was. But during the aughts, yeah, regularly being a contrarian meant being dissed nastily yeah. by a great many nice, intelligent black people. Why yeah. would anybody seek that out? It means that, you know, you really believe what you're saying. Yeah. But yeah, that is the life of the quote unquote contrarian. Yeah. And I've, I I hate that more than being called anything else. You're right. House nigger, Uncle Tom. It sounds like something George Jefferson would have said. Yeah. And you know that it does, it's it's utterly irrelevant. Yeah. Contrarian is so trivializing. Yeah. Yeah. The most popular one I get these days is coon, actually, which is coon? just weird and ancient. So <laughs> I just don't know why. I don't understand that at all. Um, but I want to talk a bit about the ideas um, in losing the race and um, anti-racism. And I I both want to set it up and provide at least a summation with what I took away from these books Mm -hmm. again. um, And just as a bit of a throat clearing exercise, losing the race, self-sabotage in black America published in 2000 um, is a book that I encountered in college. My wife gave me a copy of this book. And um, I read it the first time. I hated it. I mean, I was like barely getting through it. I'm not even like finishing. Trying. I'm like this, this. It Uncle was Tom, also this it, house, nigga. It's also too long. Uh-huh. So, yeah. And and I I had curious ideas about race then, but not so curious. That it's fairly standard for someone who is a Caribbean American. Mm-hmm. Like for Jamaicans, the sensibility being in America is we are not those people. Right. Um, we're black when it's convenient for us. Mm-hmm. So Barack Obama is our boy. Mm-hmm. But we get behind closed doors and are all too happy to disparage native born blacks. We mm-hmm. see ourselves as different from them, mm-hmm. again, when it's convenient. Um, so I had that already and I had a weird 
set of uh, convictions uh, as well about just kind of individuality that my father had had communicated to me. Um, not not in any systematically, he was deliberate about it, but he wasn't doing it to any philosophical end except he wasn't being an August yeah, Wilson character. This is uh, this yeah. is you need these tools to survive, right? Um, and I said father, but it's my my stepfather. But he was, was around from the time I was two, and so that's that's the relationship. Father and all, but yeah. yeah. But in terms of your book, there are a couple of a couple of things I, I kind of categorized it under three headings, which are borrowing from the chapter headings in your book. Um, the cult of victimhood, mm-hmm. this notion um, of uh, a disadvantageous preoccupation with racism, finding it, uncovering it. Um, exaggerating its effect. It's the exaggerating way I it. it I, I, I would add to exaggerating it, manufacturing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the cult of separatism. Um, that which, results from victimology. Right. Which, right. And there's a, a relatedness between all of these They're things. Nested, but, right. you know, with the cult of separatism, there's the excusing cultural pathology and dysfunction, things that are wrong, um, but also literal racial separatism, like the mm-hmm. teachings of um, the Nation of Islam. Right. Which interestingly, is an actual thriving, existing separatist organization Mm -hmm. as opposed to the white supremacist movement that we often hear so much about that is poorly fragmented and rarely has many people at their events. Mm -hmm. Like in the same weekend, um, Louis Farrakhan has held events with 15 to 20,000 people in attendance, um, sometimes prominent celebrities. uh, And Mm -hmm. Richard Spencer has held events with a thousand people in some. a thousand people there protesting him and maybe five <laughs> people supporting him. Right. Richard Spencer gets all of the coverage and Louis Farrakhan. There is this systematic effort, it seems. Oh, well, and he's I, cool. I don't mean there's a conspiracy, but there is an endorsement amongst like, hip hop artists and various black celebrities. He may be a little crazy, yeah. but he's got some they interesting find ideas. Right. They find the good parts in mm-hmm. him, which interestingly, even Richard Spencer does that. They yep. had a they had an exchange recently where uh, <laughs> Richard Spencer said, we'd like to talk to you about this idea of separating the races. Oh, Lord. Um, and then the last thing, though, is uh, this cult of in- anti-intellectualism, um, mm-hmm. the, the notion of academic success of the the things that are indicative, the characteristics that are indicative of a successful, engaged, uh, upwardly mobile person in America are are defined as whiteness. And we have to regard that alien thing as bad, as unnatural, as as insufficiently black and to be suspicious of it. Mm-hmm. Um and that these things kind of work together, and that's the self-sabotage mm-hmm. that's taking place, that process that's that's at work all the time. Reading the book really helped to solidify some things for me that I'd felt in various ways and that you will even hear people talk about behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, but that in public, for whatever reason, it just is so difficult to actually get people to articulate the the fact or to accept, to endorse the reality that there are, in some cases, like things that you are doing that are consequential in terms of creating like, disparities and outcomes, like mm-hmm. not doing as well academically, having being overrepresented demographically in the prison population or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, the obsession with finding um, and exaggerating and often manufacturing racist uh, race, um, the the preoccupation with racism um, 
is something that I think the the dangers of which are not well understood at all. Um, and your book really helped to to bring a lot of that home for me. So I agree forcefully with that. Um, the place where I find um, perhaps a little bit of disagreement, or at least I wonder about, is like the, the anti-intellectualism piece. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that there's a regard for intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I grew up in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, so fairly affluent um, suburb of Washington, D.C., um, middle class, but, but relatively affluent and diverse. And I was a member of this thing called the Brotherhood of Superstars, which is a junior auxiliary thing uh, of the Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, historically mm-hmm. black fraternity. And, you know, was pretty good student mm-hmm. um, and was read- readily celebrated by my friends and who were mostly black at the time for being successful and black. I think that's a thing. And I, I wonder if the anti-intellectualism is perhaps more about like, being alien Mm-hmm. and not being sufficiently black in their eyes. Mm-hmm. If you are sufficiently black, if you can code switch in the right way, mm-hmm. if you give off the right signals and you dress sure. in a black fashion, sure. then you can be sort of smart and accomplished. You can talk like them and it's fine. If you sure. agree with the ideas, sure. then that's great. But if you are failing to check the boxes, mm-hmm. any of the things that are necessary to be an upstanding black person mm-hmm. and you are seemingly insufficiently black in some uh, some weird way, some characteristic way. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that is, in fact, the problem. So I wonder, I wonder what you think of that that refinement. Sure, there's some bleed there. You can be the person who has all those cultural boxes checked off, and nobody's going to say. But if you're getting A's, that makes you white. No, mm-hmm. you'll you'll pass. On the other hand, though, I don't think that the issue is that the person who's being called white for doing well in school is always somebody who has white speech patterns and doesn't dress in the proper way and doesn't listen to the proper music. And I know that partly because it's interesting what constitutes science, but losing the race got an awful lot of mail. Mm-hmm. Awful lot. I mean, mm-hmm. this is even this is when physical mail was still a thing. People were bothering <laughs> to write me on paper. Uh-huh. About 2000 missives. And then I stopped counting. I still get mail about losing the race 17 years later. And what I got among all of this mail, which I still can't, stuff, I still can't get this book on Kindle. I'm sorry for um, interrupting you. We need to fix that. Yeah, John. we should fix that. I've, I've purchased like seven copies of this book now. <laughs> I don't want anything for that. But that I need is, a Kindle you. version. That is ancient. I'll, I will look into that. Sorry. But I would get that's OK. 200 pieces of mail that I got, which I still have in a folder, are from people saying that they were called acting white. And as, as I've written, you can date exactly when this started. Mm-hmm. It started in 1966. You can tell. And the people who wrote me generally did not seem to me to be these completely, as we used to say, whiteified sorts of people. Sure. So many teachers of both colors wrote me that it was a very real problem asking what you could do about it with black boys in particular saying, I can't do well in school because they will call me acting white for doing it. Mm-hmm. And this is implying that these boys were already fitting in yeah. with their homies, so to speak, but that doing well in school would have been incommensurate. So I don't I don't think that that's all of it, although it is part of it. Some people have criticized my acting white writing as missing the kind of nuance that you're saying. They're saying that you're called acting white because you're not wearing the right pants, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just about grades. And sure, nevertheless, 
the reality from all of the mail that I got, from all of the life that I had lived beforehand as a perfectly rational person, yeah. is such that I can no more say that the acting white charge is not a reality than anybody would say on the basis of 200 pieces of mail and living a life that there hasn't <laughs> been a problem with the cops and black men. You know, all you have to hear is two people saying that I was pushed up against a wall, et cetera, et cetera. And we're ready to say that the cops in the United States are this bunch of racist bullies. They're an occupying army. It takes two anecdotes. Well, I've got a lot more than the two. Mm -hmm. And I think that the acting white thing is very much real. It's not um, what I was writing about is not usually conscious. And so I think what the media jumped on and what most sticks in the mind is the poor kid who's rejected for making the grades. But it goes further than that. It still exists today in, for example, this. Separatism and then the anti-intellectualism that's nested within it. There's a new thing out there, which I didn't know about in 2000. I've heard about it lately. The person who I've heard claiming this is Trisha Rose at Brown University. Uh, she, she's a black scholar. Mm -hmm. I've also heard it in some other places where I'm not going to name the names, but she's been particularly explicit. The idea that math is racist. Now, it's uh -huh. not quite put that way. Right. But the new idea is that if hiring criteria and criteria for getting tenure and criteria for getting into the best journals in a field is based significantly upon having a control of higher math and statistics, right. that's racist because not as many black people are interested in that or qualified to do that. And that means that if you're requiring the math, then you have a racist hiring policy or promotion policy. Right. Now, that gets a certain contingent cheering. But first of all, it's separatist because 50 years ago, the idea would have been we need to learn how to do the math. It's hard to imagine any other group of people, non-white group of people saying it's wrong to expect the math. No right. Chinese person would say that. No immigrant and black America wouldn't have done that in 1920 or 1950. It would have been unheard of to say, we're going to withdraw ourselves from learning the math because the math is white. That's very post-1966. And so it's separatist in that anybody would be open to the idea that part of being a black American person is to not cherish quantitative reasoning when it's ever more central to ever more disciplines. Nobody would even think of that until now. Roy Wilkins is turning in his grave. And then it's anti-intellectual in that, frankly, if you're not doing the numbers, then in many cases, you're not doing what today is considered the most precise work. So if the idea is that the proper thing for a black person to do is to write articulately about their impressions, that's the black thing. Yeah. Well, what you get then is, frankly, ta Coates being celebrated as an intellectual. And frankly, I think that there's some problems. A, a genius. Oh, he's a genius. You know, just <laughs> superior. It's, it's amazing. He's, it's like Mozart. And what, where that evaluation comes from, frankly, is partly the idea that for black people, the bar is set much lower for what is considered the highest achievement than for others. That comes from this sense of separatism. That separate sense comes from the idea that we suffer so much that the history has been so unpleasant and has such a a, a truly definitive impact on our present that mm -hmm. we can't be expected to do what other people can do. So all of it is very much nested, such that today we have, for example, the idea that it's racist to expect black scholars to have top quality quantitative skills. That's something that would have made no sense to the very blackest of black leaders 50 years ago. That's very new. And it's not progress. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, I take your point. Acting white is partly 
that you're not wearing the right clothes and it's how you talk. But there is something about the idea of close reasoning. And I mean, the, the most beautiful example, I wish this person had stayed in the business so that he could be spoken to. I don't know who Clifton Castile was, but he did a study, I think it was about 25 years ago, that made its way through the literature here and there, where some kids, Camille, to tell you the truth, it's been so long, I don't remember exactly how old they were. I'm going to say fourth or fifth grade. Mm -hmm. White kids and black kids were asked whether they did their homework for the teacher or for their parents. Mm. Disproportionately, the black kids said they did their homework for the teacher. The white kids disproportionately said they did their homework for their parents. That's a very clever experiment. So it's not that the black kids are saying they don't do their work, but you do it for the outside. That's for that person at school. It's not something that is part of home life. It has nothing to do with my nearest and dearest. In other words, who I am, mm -hmm. as opposed to the white kids where they're doing it, thinking of mom and dad. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thing I mean. That sort of orientation can have a major impact on how you do in college, on how you feel about nerdiness. Overtly, everybody understands that good grades and nerdiness have their good sides. Covertly, Black identity can create a sense that nerdiness threatens your identity as a warm, approachable person. That mm -hmm. if you're a nerd, you might not really like black people. The sense that if you're a nerd, you might not really like black people is evidence of that sense that nerdiness is something outside of being black. Mm -hmm. Covert makes this stuff harder, though. Because it's not many people read Losing the Race and thought that I meant that black people were walking around telling their kids not to go to college. That's not what I meant. Mm -hmm. It's subtler than that. But just because it's subtle doesn't mean it isn't powerful. I want to maybe transition a bit because we we're talking a lot about blackness mm -hmm. um, and race. And these are concepts that we are all intimately familiar with and <laughs> frequently confronted with. But like language, we don't often wrestle with what these things, what these concepts actually represent and what they mean. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you know, I pointed out um, at the beginning of our conversation that that common thread in a lot of your work where you're disentangling things and helping people to see the the non-obvious mm -hmm. about something that they use all mm -hmm. the time. Um, it's not that it's counterintuitive. You haven't bothered to think about this at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not obvious, so it requires some intellectual out ex expenditure on mm -hmm. your part in order to grok it. Mm -hmm. um, just a weird sci-fi term that I and I'm hearing it for the first time. And is that I'm right? Keep it. This is what I mean by I'm always looking. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, grok. Yeah, yeah. I think is that um, Philip 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 K. Dick. I don't I'm remember not a where that's from. Guy. Actually, no, no. You know what it is? It's um, Heinlein, and it's from the the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Hmm. Yeah, that's grok. That's, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to keep yeah, it. I understand. Um, which there, there are circles in which that's used. It's not just me. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's just me. Uh, but now I've almost lost my train of thought, but not quite. But I wanted to talk about like race and, and blackness and try sure. to try to define these things a bit, because I think it's a place where there is perhaps a, a little bit of um, not a little bit probably the most substantial like disagreement that we might have on these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason um, that I, I think it's so important is because I suspect that blackness and identifying as black is the perhaps the central problem 
Um, not to say that there aren't like other things related to it, but mm -hmm. it's the central problem. And it's the central problem because blackness isn't uh, something you are. It's something you do. Mm -hmm. And it's the attributes of blackness at this point mm -hmm. the, that are perhaps leading to bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean when I say that? I mean that being black in this country is a matter of adopting a particular set of ideas and values. And amongst those values are um, the sentiments that I frequently see expressed in the work of people like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who the other day was giving these remarks because he's out touting his book. And he was explaining to a white student who inquired about use of the word nigger by her friends. Um, and I suspect it was nigger, but mm -hmm. I, I think the distinction is silly. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that you might have a different <laughs> point of view on that. And I defer to you because you're a linguist. I saw coverage <laughs> of this exchange in the yeah. media. And to be honest, as with most things about him, I kind of skipped it. What happened? Let me I'm, I'm going to play the audio and I can inject it okay. uh, later so you can so you can know because we you got a little I heard that he going. said something brilliant. Um, it's so not brilliant. <laughs> it is. This is the it's the weirdness of living in a universe where I hear things and I feel like I hear them in a way that no one else hears them. And it's just so <laughs> frustrating. But here it is. Words don't have meaning without context. OK, um, my wife refers to me as honey. That's accepted and OK between us. If we were walking down the street together and a strange woman referred to me as honey, <laughs> that wouldn't be acceptable. The understanding is I have some sort of relationship with my wife. Hopefully, I have no relationship with this strange woman. <clears throat> when I was young and I used to go see my family uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, where my dad was from, they would all call him Billy. His name is William Paul Coates. Um, no one in Baltimore called him Billy, and had I referred to my father as Billy, that probably would have been a problem. That's because the relationship between myself and my dad is not the same as the relationship between my dad and his mother and his sisters who he grew up with, right? We, we understand that. Um, it's the same thing with words within the African-American community, or within any community. Uh, my wife, with her girlfriend, will use the word bitch. I do not join in. I don't, you know, say, hey, I want to, I don't do that. I don't do that. And perhaps more importantly, I don't have a desire to do it. You, you understand? You know, um, it, a while ago, Dan Savage was going to have this uh, show that he was going to call Hey Faggot. I'm not going to yell faggot at Dan Savage. I'm just not, that's not my relationship with the LGBT community. And, and I understand that. And I'm okay with that. I don't have a desire to, you know, uh, uh, yell out the word, you know, faggot. I just don't have that. Um, the question one must ask, if, if that's accepted and normal for groups of people, we understand that, you know, it's normal, actually, for groups to use words that are derogatory in an ironic fashion. Why is there so much hand-wringing when black people do it? Um, black people are basically, you know, however you feel about it, they're not outside of the normal rules and laws for humanity. I had a, you know, a good friend who used to have this um, cabin in upstate New York, which he referred to as the white trash cabin. He was white. I would never refer to that cabin. I would never tell him I'm coming to your white trash cabin. <laughs> I just wouldn't do that. I, and and I, you know what I mean? I think you understand why I wouldn't do it. The question one must ask is why so many white people have difficulty Extending things that are basic laws, you know, 
of how human beings interact to black people. And I think I know why. <laughs> um, when you're white in this country, you're taught that everything belongs to you. You think you had a right to everything. You had a right to go with you. I mean, you're conditioned this way. It's not, you know, because you, you know, your hair is a texture or your skin is light. It's the fact that the laws and the culture tell you this. You had a right to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, be however, and people just got to accommodate themselves to you. So here comes this word that, you know, you feel like you invented. <laughs> and now somebody will tell you how to use the word that you invented. You know, well, why can't I use it? Everyone else gets to use it. You know what, that's racism that I don't get to use it. You know, that's racist against me. You know, I have to inconvenience myself and, and hear this song and I can't sing along? How come I can't sing along? You know what I mean? And I think, you know, uh, uh, for white people, I think the experience of being a hip hop fan and not being able to use the word nigga is actually very, very insightful. It will give you just a little peek into the world of what it means to be black. Because... <laughs> Because to be black is to walk through the world and watch people doing things that you cannot do, that you can't join in and do, you know? And so I think there's actually a lot to be learned from refrain. Oh, I played God. the whole thing. That was a church service. And I don't know how to, I don't know how we'll cut that up. Maybe we'll just inject the whole thing into the podcast. And then uh, right now I'm apologizing to you for it because for for Apology me, and it's, it's interesting to watch it with you, John, or at least to uh. listen to it with you because you can hear it. I can see it. Um, because I think we grimace at a lot of the same points um, and, and even shake our heads at the applause at a lot of the same points. Um, and I, I don't... Camille, I, I suspect I the wanna, reasons are I all the same, too. I want to interject that... Please. I am deeply insulted as a black person at the idea that what we just heard when it's a black person constitutes some sort of higher reasoning. That was I mean, not not only for just, black people. That was though. that was a routine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that. I mean, it was it was okay, but that was a root. It was so unsubtle. Mm -hmm. It was so flimsy, and yet I saw that go around in the media about yeah. seventy two hours ago, yeah, yeah. as if that was some sort of brilliant insight about the N word. When whole books have been written about the subject. I'm insulted. That are that are far. I'm simply that insulted. are far better. The the reasoning on offer there is is very very poor. Um, it's it's incredibly slippery. Yeah. The the fact and and here this is so we're we're deviating a bit. The I'll come back to the to the blackness thing. The the principal issue I have with not the principal issue, but among the many issues apart from the substance is that frequently when Tanahisi is delivering oration like this, he isn't confronted by anyone in public and there isn't a, a robust exchange. Because he's Jesus. And, right. and so suspect, nobody will ever truly critique him. He might, he might be scared. And if you scared, <laughs> say you scared, my nigga. Um, <laughs> yep. but, um, but it makes it easy to caricature the, the other side of the argument. And it makes it much easier to deliver a, a piece of argument like this, what she suggests, the young girl suggests, is that there should be corridors of speech that are limited, off limits to people who don't have particular characteristics. And she's concerned that her friends aren't abiding by the same prohibitions that she does. Um, and 
she knows that their intention isn't necessarily malevolent, um, except that they are, they don't care about the fact that other people are telling them what they can't say. Mm -hmm. This isn't about saying, calling your dad, Billy, or calling your wife a bitch, which is actually besmirching someone. Mm -hmm. Um, It is actually uh, taking a specific relationship that you have and dealing with this person in a way that they don't expect. This is about projecting power in a very broad way that obliterates context and puts a new context in this superposition to Mm -hmm. borrow a concept from physics. Um, And this new context is at one point in the history of the United States, race was all and black people were treated in a particular way. And now in the future, forever and ever, amen, so long as anyone talks about, so long as anyone uses this particular word or in fact does anything, they must do it in the context of that horrible thing that happened once. In fact, Mm -hmm. that's when Ta-Nehisi and, and the lesser lights who, who uh, ape the things that he does talk about white supremacy, that's what they're talking about, this mm-hmm. universe that we live in that abides by the rules that were set up that so long ago. Um, he said that in order for words, words have to have context in order to have meaning. Um, I wonder what your perspective might be on that, but he's willing to eviscerate the context. It doesn't matter what your intent is when you're singing long to to Yeezy um, mm-hmm. or to Lil Uzi Vert or to, or to Future. Um, what matters is that he says you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And if you still do it, then you are You're evil, bad. You're heathen. Yeah. Um, and I find that objectionable. But the, the reason I played the clip was for the last statement, in fact, that mm-hmm. he made, which is this notion that to be black in America is to see people all around you doing things that you can't do. Mm -hmm. Um, As if it was 1915. uh, This is the thing, though. I do think that for many people, that is ultimately the defining characteristic of blackness. Not to say that black people don't care about their families and they don't do other things. You're hitting on something. The thing that you do as a black person is this. Is feel aggrieved. Yeah. And that's why I said the notion of blackness mm-hmm. as as a thing that you are to the extent it's voluntary at all it mm-hmm. is signing on to to that idea definitely and if we don't have to be these discrete racial categories because mm-hmm. i would argue that you know biologically genetically they are not nearly as discrete as people imagine them to be mm-hmm. um then why bother rehabilitating it or trying to save it, why not jettison it? If there are as many ways to be black as there are black people, which is a trope I've heard repeatedly, then why bother with it at all? Why not adopt what is effectively the the position of most white folk in America? Right. I'm an American and I don't really think about race frequently. Instead, it's the pervasive paranoia that every interaction in every supermarket, when you walk into the high-end retailer, it's how are you today? Did you are you talking to me because I'm black? Or if I don't say anything, it's not because the shopkeeper was busy. It's, it's because they don't think I got no money to right. spend. Yeah. That kind of yeah, I it's think yeah, gross and pernicious. And you that's it. You're hitting on something that um I think a lot of people bristle to hear said, but frankly, it's the truth, which is try to define blackness referring to anything concrete. Say something about the centrality of dancing in the culture, which mm-hmm. is there. Well, no, you're stereotyping. Say something about <laughs> the food, 
say something about fried chicken? Well, no, you're, you're stereotyping, even though black people do have a particular affection for fried chicken. I do. And it's because I'm black. Yeah. Say anything like that. Well, no, you're stereotyping. The thing that defines especially what an active black identity, the idea of, for example, coming into college and becoming aware of yourself as a black person, et cetera, the way people talk about it is aggrievement. The core of especially educated black American identity is a sense of yourself as a member of a group oppressed by white racism. That is the defining feature. That is something which nobody could say is a stereotype. And yes, it's not a healthy group identity. To be a good black person in an unspoken way is supposed to be seeing yourself, seeing your life as defined by how white people do or don't feel about you. That does not work for me. And so, for example, I grew up being told by many people that if I didn't feel like I had much in common with, for example, a black kid who grew up in the inner city where we frankly had no particular traits in common other than maybe a few things such as cuisine, mm -hmm. et cetera, mm -hmm. I was told, yeah, but the police see you and him in the same way. And that is definitely true. Or white people see you and him in the same way. And I always thought to myself, but really, is my identity going to be based on how people are misperceiving me? And for many people, the feeling is particularly, and this is what I'm getting to, that misperception could get you killed by the cops. Mm -hmm. I think, and I've written this in a lot of places, and I don't think most people ever quite understand how much I mean it. The core to getting past what you're talking about is the cops and the relationship between the cops and black men, some of the myths surrounding it, because mm -hmm. I think that story is not told told properly mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, you, I think, are premature. Yes, race is not a biologically valid concept. There are clusters. And so you could tell from you know a drop of somebody's blood that they came from Senegal rather than from Samoa or Norway. There right, are they clusters. Have, that that but, some of their ancestors are from there. But we I mean, could... Because the way genetic admixture works, it's the sort of thing where several generations back, you have 64 ancestors. And right. Some percentage of them came but from somewhere we, else. But yes, we should be able to get beyond this sort of thing. And the idea of a group of Americans walking around defining themselves on the basis of aggrievement over something other people are doing is psychologically unhealthy. It's it's lame, mm -hmm. frankly. When you listen to somebody like Coates in that speech, what you can see is that ultimately somebody like him, and he's not uncommon, wouldn't quite know where to grab on if they didn't have that aggrievement. Mm -hmm. This artificial policing of the N-word, the idea that white boys who grow up listening to hip hop and loving it are racists if they start having a sense that using the n-word is their way of saying buddy if they want to sing along to the music they identify with and they say the n-word they're racists that's laying down a gauntlet mm -hmm. because somebody like him wouldn't quite know who they were if they couldn't have that sense of aggrievement at what white people do. That's not that's not healthy. People are going to look at it strangely in 100 years. But I don't think we can get past it without a more constructive dialogue about the cops, because that stands in the way. When I wrote Losing the Race, mm -hmm. I genuinely wanted to see a lot of the quote unquote research I did for Losing the Race was just talking to people. I even went to some black nightclubs just to talk to people, to watch people, because I remember thinking, I don't want to write this 
in anger. Mm -hmm. I don't want to distort it. I, I am writing about good people. And mm -hmm. so I even stepped outside of myself a couple of times in doing that. That's a great point. What's going on here? Why do so many black people, frankly, exaggerate the effects of racism? What is the reason? And what I found was it's the cops. That is the main, that is the main I shouldn't say linchpin. That is the fulcrum <laughs> of the problem such that in in these teens uh -huh. with social media, notice that it's Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, et cetera, yes. who have galvanized this whole new sense of racism in America and created the, the, the celebrity of somebody like Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. If we can't get past this cop business, then then this mm -hmm. you are hoping that we can tell a black kid in the Bronx that he's just a person and not a black person. I don't think that he can hear that any more than you or I could sincerely embrace the idea that we're mammals and not, mm -hmm. not people. It, it won't work. And a lot of the reason that that black kid cannot hear that he's just a person and not a black person is because of what he will grow up thinking mm -hmm. of the police. And that's not pretty, but I think that it's true. I have watched this here in New York City. Kids grow up developing that sense of what the cops are mm -hmm. and it makes them feel like they are a separate people. And mm -hmm. once that's stamped in at about the age of 15, often it, it never goes away. So yes, race is artificial. It's funny. I consider myself black American. I hate the term African American, didn't like it then, have never embraced it. I am black. <laughs> that is what I am. Uh -huh. Now, some people will say, or, you know, they'll wait till my back is turned. Well, how are you black? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't talk that way. You don't walk that way. How much hip hop do you listen to? Your wife is white, et cetera. You're talking about Hemingway and Fitzgerald. How are you black? Mm -hmm. And I've got some answers, but the truth is I'm not black in the sense that Ta-Nehisi Coates is. You know, I do lead a much whiter life mm -hmm. than he does. Yet I, at 52, am not not going to say that I'm just a person. I grew up being called black. Both of my parents were black. That's it. I do have daughters, though, and they are half black and they're half white. And now we have this term biracial, which mm -hmm. I didn't hear until the year 2000. And I'm thinking to myself, my kids are supposed to be black. The idea is that because they're half black, they're black and they'd better learn that because but because what? What? Because they're going to get beat up by the cops. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in the 2020s and 30s, I'm not sure if those two girls are black. I think they're biracial. I think they're just people. But that's very new. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of them rejects that classification. I dread one of them coming back from college, you know, thinking in the ways that you and I are so impatient with. But you know, just <laughs> it might happen. I hope that they can grow up to be just people. That is my greatest fear I with just, my, my daughter. Um, that I would be, be so happy soon. if, yeah, if one of them, you know, there's nothing they could tell me that would dismay me more <laughs> than coming back and defining themselves as, you know, aggrieved black people because of the cops. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. So, yes, I know what you're going for. Mm -hmm. It's premature until we solve the cop problem. And well, solving me... it is two things, two quick things. Uh -huh. One the cops need to be reformed to an extent. Mm -hmm. Two, as I've written in a couple of pieces, we need to embrace that the racism that we ascribe to the cops is not as clear cut as we often think. We don't hear about the white people who get killed under the exact same conditions sure. all year, every year. Sure. That's a story the media doesn't tell or they avoid the implications of the data. That yeah. needs to get out there more. But until we've really had that honest discussion about the cops from both perspectives, black is going to be black. So I want to be sure I understand when you say the cops, there is a, 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 
a spectrum of issues related to criminal justice reform, that particular issue. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you do you mean that in a in a broader global sense that there are these manifestations, both of kind of historic injustices mm-hmm. and even contemporary bias, be it explicit or implicit, that has repercussions. And mm-hmm. until we address those things, it will be hard for people to let go Impossible. of this. Of this, yeah. Con- so it is that broader context, very much. Okay. Like there should be no war on drugs. I think, and Got I it. say that in particular, yeah, not because I'm some sort of libertarian on drugs, but because it you would be, be much less. <laughs> so I'm told people should have much less. The cops would have much less contact with black people sure. at all. I think one generation of black boys across this nation in particular growing up with no sense of the cops as anything Mm -hmm. would put us on the way to what you're talking about, where people felt like they were just people. Well, this is so this is the thing. Um, I I understand what you're what you're getting at. And it's part of the reason why I why I approach the issues as I do and why I actually reject I reject race and the the notion of self-identifying in that way alongside of my broader issue advocacy mm-hmm. and my explication of where problems are and how we might go about remedying them. Mm-hmm. It's because I think that the racial component is frequently a distraction um, mm-hmm. and it obscures rather than bringing into relief the important issues that are under consideration. So as an example, we can take police shootings, which is an issue that we've been talking about um incessantly almost for almost four years now since uh, Ferguson, really. I think Trayvon Martin is a slightly different situation, Mm -hmm. but they all have the same characteristics. You get the narrative, a certain portion of the population immediately believes that the guilt or the innocence of the person involved. In fact, it doesn't even matter if the news reports change later. Mm -hmm. We already know. Especially with Ferguson. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that there are beliefs that cannot be substantiated by the data that persist because of the the orthodoxy of blackness that requires you to find racism everywhere. Right. And the catechism. I think, yeah, I think that that catechism, which is a great word for that, um, <laughs> um, I think that that catechism is actually an obstacle to making progress on these issues for two reasons. One, because it balkanizes things and it makes it something that is a unique concern for black folk mm-hmm. um, for the re- in the way you just highlighted. And two, because the solutions become obscure. People start hiring black police officers rather than, for example, uh, getting rid of drug prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think there are various other examples of how that dynamic works. It's, it's the the book by Michelle Alexander, uh, The New Jim Crow, which mm-hmm. is a horrible, terrible book <laughs> that is filled with logical inconsistencies and dramatic misunderstandings of the reality um, of the world that we live in, she, in which she makes this argument that um, the the criminal justice system is primarily driven by some sort of bizarre um, desire to incarcerate people for profit. Right. It just it doesn't make sense. It's completely incoherent, but it does, um, I think, represent the actual kind of view very much that exists. And notice that that book has been elevated as a New Testament. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just uh, in, inspired um, or at least greatly influenced the Khalif Browder um, documentary that's on, on mm-hmm. Netflix now. But 
I, I don't think you can actually understand those issues if you are viewing them through the prism of race and racial injustice. And it I don't shuts think down any constructive discussion. And I think it's yeah. it's true of so many of the places where we are told persistently that there are these disparate outcomes um, mm -hmm. with hiring, for example, the job applicants, um, black people and white people go in with the same criteria, qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. And black people don't get the job as much. And mm -hmm. how can we explain this? Obviously, racism. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the presumption there is that blackness and whiteness are the same thing. They are indistinguishable from one another. But if black people are predisposed to believe that they will encounter racism, Mm -hmm. If they walk into an interview believing and trying to disentangle whether or not the person they're sitting across from is primarily interested in their race, then the subtle notion factors that of interaction. Some, yeah, some outcome yeah. disparity is is different. And what I've discovered that's so amazing, and I, I recently read a meta study that took a number of these different um, studies on hiring and arrived at the belief, the conclusion that over the last 30 years, there has been no change whatsoever in terms of this disparity in hiring for blacks and whites. Mm -hmm. And that suggests that racism in hiring has unchanged. It hasn't abated at all, mm -hmm. despite the fact that, you know, interracial marriage numbers have changed and you've got a black president and all these other things. It is an unbelievable premise, but that's what they, the conclusion they arrived at. I don't know why you don't actually, I know why you don't take the additional step mm -hmm. of saying, what are the things in common what are the attributes that all of the people, black mm -hmm. or white, who manage to get hired have mm -hmm. and that the people, black or white, who manage not to get hired have? And is it the case that amongst the people who are getting hired, that it's the same people who mm -hmm. are likely to get hired? Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any sort of thoughtful analysis of that and the degree to which not only this belief in the reality of race and the necessity of race and racial identity not only animates these pernicious fictions amongst black people, but distracts serious social scientists who ought to be asking thoughtful questions and journalists who are supposed who are often interpreting work that they haven't really read mm -hmm. and don't fully understand um, that it all gets presented in terms of race. And that is an easy to easy to grok. Um, explanation of what the hell is going on, but yeah. it should be deeply dissatisfying to anyone who actually cares about these issues sure. because it's not the least bit explanatory unless yeah. you buy the notion that, yeah, it's racism. It's always racism. The it's fun? so convenient, but it's it's seldom in my, expl in my experience um, a sufficiently good explanation. The funny thing is that there's so much work that actually is done that shows the lie behind the idea that racism is always central to these things. And yet the catechism is such that smart people read these sources or are told these things and don't hear the implications. And so, for example, there's this interesting book called No Shame in My Game written by Catherine Newman about 20 years ago about basically what obstacles inner city black people face. And it's supposed to be a book from the left, but she does a good job, a good anthropologue logical job of following various black New Yorkers who were poor. And there are whole passages in it where it's painfully obvious that part of the reason that black people can be underemployed in some contexts is because of things that black people have internalized in the culture. And so she has a whole sequence about how black teenagers make fun of each other for working in fast food restaurants. Mm -hmm. They hide that they're doing it, that they leave the job whenever they can. It's supposed to be something you're ashamed of that you work at what she calls Burger Barn, which is McDonald's and Burger King, et cetera. <laughs> well, if that's the work ethic, 
of people who are doing these jobs. Now, let's okay, you probably aren't going to become a manager at these jobs. But if that is the attitude towards employment among these 16 and 17 year olds, does that have nothing to do with what the employment statistics are going to be for that same population when they're in their 20s or 30s? Or there have been studies done, and it's a lot of studies, showing that to the extent that some employers do avoid hiring in particular black men. It's because of experience they've had with black men not being good or dependable hires. Now, you can talk about why they weren't, and I'm the last one to say that they weren't good or dependable hires because they're bad people, because there's a flaw in black culture. You can talk about why those men are that way. Nevertheless, if somebody is trying to run a business, they may get to the point where they decide, I would really rather not bother with black men because I've had such bad experiences with them in the past. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody like Jamel Bowie or, you know, the the typical person is going to look at the statistics and say, what else could it be but racism? It's too it's too simplistic. And in many cases, it's not that you would have to dig that deeply to find out what's really going on. William Julius Wilson's work is full of young black men making it clear that they're much too picky about employment. Mm-hmm. They don't want to get up early. Something is too far away. It's right there in print. But people just miss those passages in favor of the catechism that just says that white people's feelings are the determining factor in any problem that black people have. It simply isn't mm-hmm. true. It also, I mean, when you say it that way, and I'm, I'm really glad you cited uh, William Julius Wilson. It reminds me of, uh, of my experience in school. Um, <laughs> but um, when you say it that way, it almost sounds like you know, black people are are lazy. Like what we're talking mm-hmm. about here is just a, a, a genetic disposition of the last thing particular I mean. population. And, right. and I know it is. And this is and this is a, another reason why I think in the same way that you do with language, the the fluidity of meaning and mm-hmm. the transition that's happening that's natural, that's normal, the fact that cultures have attributes and that cultures can be good for some particular outcome or bad for mm-hmm. some particular outcome. Is accepted culture, among all people except black people. Well, black people can't have any negative cultural traits is the assumption. Sure. I mean, any but any criticism that's made publicly is a criticism of what you are and right. not what you're doing and not particular decisions that are being made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about, you know, the the culpability, responsibility for Ta-Nehisi Coates, ultimately those bad, poor decisions you're making is because you've been forced to be this way by he whiteness. Put white history. supremacy. History is supreme, is supreme in If that I case. may break in briefly, Go for this it. is a major point in the race debate now where I think that the the usual people, I call them the people with three names, but <laughs> the usual people really have hit a wall uh-huh. and people who don't agree with them need not think of themselves as racists. Every summer in certain American large cities, black boys start killing each other over nothing in particular. And you just get these hideous statistics going up into the hundreds. Yeah. All these homicides. The people I, I think with, the nothing in particular is important as well, because oftentimes we talk about it and it's the drug war. But, right. But, but sometimes in Chicago, it is little in Baltimore. Issues, it's so much. Somebody looked at somebody that. the wrong way. Something yeah. about a girlfriend. Kill one another. The people with three names want us to believe that they're killing each other because of racism. Now, because that sounds kind of weak over the past couple of years, we put it in a different way. White supremacy is a more colorful way of saying Mm -hmm. that grabs people's collar. White supremacy is why such and such shoots such and such in the face because he gave him a dirty look or said something about his sneakers. 
It doesn't follow. Mm -hmm. It makes no logical sense. You can make some sort of flow chart analysis that such and such didn't have a dad because dad was in jail, et cetera. But the idea that that many people are killing each other and that what we need to think about when we see it is white supremacy is hopelessly weak. Yeah. That aspect of the race debate right now really speaks poorly for how far we've come since 1965. Yeah. I mean, the best the best version of that argument, probably it includes like redlining and Jim Crow mm -hmm. and the fact that people are concentrated in these places and therefore and shoot each other over and not sneakers. educated because right. of these historic bad things that happened. It's almost certainly true that that is the case in right. some way, shape or form. Historically. Precisely. But, but is that what you want to talk about now? It, yeah. It's not the... The degree to which that is actually useful for remedying the problem is, is just not obvious is zero. To me. Right. Again, it does seem like the logical place to go if we have a race first mentality, mm -hmm. because then when we look at Chicago and Baltimore and when we look at the concentration of crime and violence that's happening there, it's not, you know, whatever other dynamics are happening or the actual motivations. It's black on black crime, which mm -hmm. for me, you know, black on black crime is is. A, a phrase that I find aggravating, not because it's 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 racist to say, you know, black on black crime um, and not because I don't think that black people ought to be fixing their own community, although I do think that's kind of a, a strange concept. Um, it's because it's not actually describing what's happening here. Like black people aren't targeting one another because of their blackness. People are dying. People mm -hmm. are killing one another over trivial matters. Mm -hmm. There is something happening from a cultural standpoint that we don't fully understand or appreciate because we're we are trapped by these ideas that we have about the way the world works. That's actually not entirely um, in step with with the complicated reality mm -hmm. uh, that we actually find ourselves confronting. Um, we, we're unpacking uh, a bunch of stuff. There are 100,000 different places I'd like to go. I don't know how much longer I have you for. Not much. So maybe I'll quickly turn to sort of presidential politics, okay. the contemporary political environment. I mm -hmm. wanted to highlight um, something that you wrote um, at the beginning of this year. I think it was mm -hmm. January 21st, how to listen to Donald Trump every day for years. Mm -hmm. And it's been a year. Mm -hmm. So we haven't quite had years yet. Um and it's actually been more than a year, but he's almost been in office a year anyways. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much about what you said in that piece that I found um, extremely illuminating mm -hmm. and really, really useful and, and spot on. This general idea that Donald Trump doesn't use the high speech that mm -hmm. is associated with politicians, generally speaking, that he uses a, a low speech. It's more common mm -hmm. um, that even the the lack of sophistication that's there, the weird uh, foibles, um, <laughs> it's all stuff that we do when right. we're having regular conversations. Mm -hmm. And we find that particular audiences are drawn to it and allow it and that journalists are frequently frustrated by it. Mm -hmm. And to, to my estimation, having gotten any better, in fact, at reading and understanding it, mm -hmm. um, and it creates all manner of problem. And there are two things that I wanted to, to ask about in relation to this piece, um, and we can sort of punch out of here. One is there's something you said in there that I wanted to get clarification on. It was an insinuation that Donald Trump can do this, that he can use this low speech and still get elected, mm -hmm. and that a black candidate, perhaps Barack Obama in particular, might have been the analogy you were making, mm -hmm. 
couldn't do that. They mm-hmm. couldn't use the low speech. And I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, so I wanted to see if I wanted to clarify the point. Camille, I, I, I want to admit, I don't really particularly believe that. Okay. That was a rare case where I allowed an editor to make me say something because I didn't care that much about that piece. Hmm. And I don't radically disagree. But to be honest, a year later, I would say that um, if there were a charismatic black Democratic candidate in particular who didn't have a gift for gab, but accomplished financially. Right. But fun celebrity fun to listen to. Yeah. Or, you know, frankly, Herman Cain. That person could get away with it, too. Yeah. these days Because people like vernacular blackness Uh these days. And it's not just black people who do. And there have been plenty of prominent black conservatives, um, plenty, relatively speaking. (laughs) Um, But there have been a number of them. Herman Cain, Mm -hmm. Ben Carson. And oftentimes they are less than eloquent. Ben Carson, less than eloquent. Let me insert that does not mean for Mm -hmm. listeners that I am in general writing things that I don't believe. I consider this to be a rather (laughs) trivial point. Generally, I believe everything I write. But with that one, I figured I'll throw that person a bone. Um, The other thing that I find interesting is my own, uh, a particular note, that I'm, I'm usually sounding on this podcast and in various other places is my hope, my aspiration at the time of Trump's election. And generally when he was in the public eye, that the silver lining of a Trump presidency or a Trump ascendancy might be that people would have this opportunity to have a candidate who had these limitations. He wasn't artful. He was mm-hmm. inelegant. And when he talked about things, he wasn't employing euphemism to obscure <laughs> what's going on here. He was just bad at it. Um, there's a sense in which I think a lot of our politics is aspirational and and hopeful. There's a, a magic and a mysticism associated with it that we don't think deeply about the distance between actual outcomes and the sort of stated goals um, or even just the practical, the practicality of obtaining this end, the notion mm-hmm. of free healthcare, for example. And now I'm getting into my own politics. Hmm. Um, and, and generally speaking, just the degradation of the office, not in the sense that we don't have respect for our institutions, but in the sense that we don't place them on so high a pedestal that we will instill that person with an unparalleled amount of power and a Mm -hmm. latitude to do anything and say to ourselves that, you know, Barack Obama is the kind of guy I can have a beer with. So the fact that he has a military program or a program by which he can kill people around the world on his own authority with no accountability whatsoever is totally fine. So long as we have the right person in office, Mm -hmm. any amount of power there is Mm -hmm. totally fine. Um, I disagree with that forcefully. I don't think Donald Trump is the worst person that could get elected. And I think if people are concerned about these things, that they ought to be concerned about the office and not the person in the office. Um, I failed. That hope has been disappointed thus far. People are obsessed with the man and Mm -hmm. obsessed with all kinds of things that I think are rather paranoid. Um, I wonder if you have or had any concerns or hopes mm-hmm. related to the the strangeness of Donald Trump as a candidate from a linguistic standpoint um or if you think my my ideas uh-huh. related to that are are ridiculous and obnoxious no nothing ridiculous or obnoxious at all i mean linguistically 
I think I can be honest with you. It's at the point where I hope so. For a year, I've been regularly called upon to talk about how inarticulate that man is. And <laughs> to, frankly, the topic has gotten a little old. I remember saying back in January, the worst thing now is that linguists are going to have to talk about the way that man talks for the next, <laughs> you know, and here we are. But I think that um, <laughs> Donald Trump's racism does not concern me as much as I think it's supposed to. I think that he's a good old fashioned Archie Bunker, racist. He's a 70-year-old man of a certain place and time. Yes, he has backwards ideas about black people, but frankly, he has backwards ideas about everything, including women. I don't really care how Donald Trump feels about black people. I don't see what that has to do with the kids in Chicago, etc. He winks at white supremacists. Sure, it's not clear to me that... um. His role in their increased visibility is as significant as social media's is and the whole free speech issue on campuses, which will be going on whether or not Donald Trump was president. I care about Donald Trump because I think that he's a deeply unintelligent person mm -hmm. and therefore does impulsive things that could put the country in danger. So not only is he disappointing, interesting things are not going to happen under his watch. But, well, you know, hopefully not, actually. <laughs> what he's done with North Korea, for example, uh -huh. inarticulate is one thing. The connection between articulateness and intelligence is often overstated. But he's deeply incurious mm -hmm. and he lacks insight because he's so he's a narcissist. He's a clinical narcissist. That doesn't mean that he deserves to be... Um, put into a cage. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he's mentally ill in any significant way. All the people who think of him as mentally ill strike me as perhaps over-educated people who've never known stupid, obnoxious people. I mean, I remember Donald Trump's at, for example, Rutgers, in terms of what Rutgers was in the 1980s. Uh -huh. I find him deeply ordinary. There were Donald Trump's in the locker room. There were Donald Trump's at camp. That one happens to become president. He's not ill, but I do think that he's unfit for the office because he doesn't care about anything. He doesn't think before he talks. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that his having been elected was a step backwards. It was a step before even the founding of this republic. It was a complete mistake. Um, social media, I think, had a lot to do with it. So that's that's what I think about him. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's a bit of a racist, well, a lot of people are. The idea that black America can only succeed if white people are completely cleansed of all racist bias is a very radical notion that nobody would have thought about 50 years ago. It, and it's just not true. There is no also human sounds group. vaguely racist in a way. It does. Yeah. You know, we, a group can only <laughs> rise, you know, whatever this group is, uh -huh. if there's this major psychological revolution unheard of yeah. in human history. It's ridiculous. It's just, it's not that the people who go for this are trying to line their pockets. Unfortunately, it's worse than that. They're, they're, it's their only way of having an identity. Mm -hmm. It's what they think of as making them special to maintain this way of thinking about things. Yeah. But no, I, I think Donald Trump is a complete disaster. It's been a very depressing year watching him not run the country. Mm -hmm. I am upset because I think that he's deeply incompetent, not that he's inarticulate, not that he's a racist. Mm -hmm. I really wish he would go away. I, I agree with a fair amount of that, about 50% of it and 50% of it, not so much. <laughs> the, the one thing I'd leave you with is, you know, there's the 
the dangers associated with having a president and an administration that is staffed by people who are incompetent mm-hmm. and an advantage to everyone knowing that they're that he is incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the madman who is masquerading as a doctor, but is disheveled. And it is the overconfident, very clean um, person who presents themselves as a doctor and claims to have all sorts of knowledge and an understanding of what's happening um, inside of your body um, and is an expert in phrenology and would like (laughs) to bleed you. Um, This is the sort of latest technology on offer, and it's likely he'll kill you and you'll never recover from that flu that you have because you will be dead. Right. Um, I think that is, there's something about that analogy that I think is applicable to having really bright technocrats in office who have bold and innovative solutions, who are people that you can trust and have confidence in, um, and creating institutions that have an an aspiration for those wise philosopher kings to come into office, Mm -hmm. not appreciating that it's likely that you will frequently get that other guy that I just mentioned, and that you will occasionally get Donald Trump. (laughs) Um, So that's where my bizarre politics lead. Um, John, I'm going to let you go. This has been uh, an enormous privilege. I'm really, really grateful for you coming. Thank Your you book for having me. Is probably one of the the four most influential books for me personally that I've read. That's wonderful to hear. Um, and uh, I wrote really it so that somebody it. might say that to me one day. Well, so there, thank you. There you are. <laughs> um, it it might be in the top three. It's it's hard. It's Bastiat and um, there's oh, Milton Friedman and you, which is a, a I'll take fairly that. strange pantheon. <laughs> um, but but then there's F. A. Hayek and and Murray Rothbard under there as well. Oh, Rothbard so. too. Wow. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm a lunatic. Trust me. <laughs> no, you're, enga- you're in- intellectually engaged. I admire that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Huh? Appreciate thank you, it, Camille. Thank you. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 Column.